All right, let's uh, let's check the mics here. That looks good. Let's take a drink of coffee. That's not bad. That's not bad coffee. Kind of impressed. It was trip coffee. Didn't expect it to be as good as that. But, you know, whatever. I'll take it. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 10 of The Gorman Limit, which is my incredibly narcissistically titled podcast. I am the host, Neil Gorman. And uh, how are you? Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, how are you doing? It's weird that I ask that question always. You know, um, I can't hear what you say. This is a podcast. It's kind of like a one-way medium. You know, I say things into this microphone, record it, put it on the internet. You listen to it whenever it is, wherever it is you listen to it. You have whatever reaction you have, and, and I don't know what that is, not in real time. But I guess I just feel compelled to start the podcast that way because I do, you know? It's just, it's, I'm conditioned. Anyways, none of that matters. What is the topic of today's episode of The Gorman Limit? I am so glad that you asked. Today's topic is something that I believe is just ultra important. I'd go so far as to say vital to doing good therapeutic work of any kind with anybody. And you know, I'm going to even go further than that. I'm going to say that the topic that we're going to be starting to talk about today is a really good thing for anybody who does any kind of work with people to know about. What is the topic we're going to be talking about today? It is, are you ready for this? It is the topic of jouissance. Now, before I cue up my introduction music and jump into the main segment of this podcast, I want to make a disclaimer. That disclaimer is that jouissance is a very, very, very vast, super large, triple XL large kind of topic. There's a lot of stuff under the uh, signifier of jouissance. And there is absolutely, you know, no way at all that I could do uh, either of the following things. I cannot tell you everything that I know slash think about jouissance because it's a topic that I have been reading about and thinking about and grappling with for a number of years. And I, I think a lot of different things about it. And there's a ton about it that I just quite frankly don't have figured out. I'm still kind of thinking through it, still trying to figure out what it is that I think about it, so on and so forth. So I can't tell you everything that I think, everything that I know about Shui Sound. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I definitely can't tell you everything that, you know, all of the really important, very smart scholarly people who are thinking and writing about Shui Sounds, what they all think and know about Shui Sounds. That is not something that I can do either. Um, there's just too much there. So there's a, uh, just as a quick for instance here, there's Jacqueline Miller. Uh, he is somebody who wrote an incredible essay uh, or lecture. Maybe it was a lecture. I don't know. There's a thing it's published. It's called The Six Paradigms of Jouissance. And in that particular piece, what Miller does is he works through the teachings of Lacan and he focuses on the topic of Jouissance. And Miller shows that throughout Lacan's teachings, there are, you know, at least six different ways that Lacan thinks about and teaches about jouissance, right? So it's it's a really big topic. That's the point I'm trying to make here. 
you probably get it because you're a smart person. So I'll just, I've made my disclaimer. I can move on from there. Um, last thing I'll do before we jump in to the, the actual topic of jouissance itself here. Let me contextualize this for you, like why I'm talking about this now uh, for you real quick here. So this is, I'm recording this. It is the summer of the year 2021. Uh, I'm in the month of May right now and I teach at a university and one of the things that I decided to do this summer is take an overload. You know, I'm, I'm contracted to teach, you know, a certain number of classes in the, the fall semester, a certain number of classes in the spring semester. Anything I do in addition to that is considered an overload. So summer came around and there's a class which is being offered in the doctoral program of the School of Social Work where I teach. And the name of the class is Clinical Seminar One, Working with Individuals. And it's a class that I've taught before, and it's a class that I really, really like teaching. And so I, I, I just jumped at the opportunity to teach it again, especially if it was going to be like the only class that I was going to be teaching. Usually when I teach this class, I have to teach it in conjunction with other classes, which means the, you know, my, my time, my energy, et cetera, has to be split between classes. But this, during the summer, I can really kind of give this class like everything I've got, which is super appealing to me. It's very fun. It's very interesting because, you know, most of the therapeutic work that I do is working with individuals. And so having an entire eight week period of time where I can teach other people about, you know, things and stuff about working with individuals, it's super, super exciting. So that's, that's uh, what was going on. So I had the first classes already met. And during that first class, we uh, started to talk about uh, the first text that we're reading. The first text that we're reading is a book called The Ethics of Opting Out, Queer Theories, Defiant Subjects. It is by the super excellent, ultra brilliant Mari Rudy. And, um, you know, as we were talking about the, this text, the concept of jouissance came up. Not a surprise uh, that Mari Rudy would talk about jouissance, but, you know, it's it's a really important concept in Lacanian psychoanalysis and in Lacanian thought. So we started talking about that. And uh, lo and behold, the students in this seminar had not heard of the concept of jouissance before. It's a concept which is, you know, well, it's extremely important and very spoken about in psychoanalytic circles. It is not, you know, something which is talked about outside of those circles. And so we had this really great discussion about jouissance. And, you know, it, it after the class is over, I went for a walk. And as I was walking around, I was thinking to myself, you know, I think this concept of jouissance is something that is super, super important. It, as I said earlier, vital even to doing work with individuals. Maybe I should do a podcast about that. And so you know, the idea ruminated, ruminated, kicked around in my brain for a while. And a couple of days later, it still seems like a really good thing to do a podcast about. And that is why I'm here doing this podcast. So now that I've done my weird introduction, I've done my disclaimer, I've kind of contextualized it a little bit. What we're going to do now is cue up some more kind of uh, groovy introduction music. At least I think it's groovy. And that'll play for a couple seconds. We'll come back and we will start to talk about jouissance.
right, so to start off, what I want to do is to describe how it is that the topic of jouissance came up in this seminar that I'm teaching this summer. And the reason I want to take the time to describe this situation where the topic of jouissance came up is because I think that it's very representative of other situations where the topic of jouissance has come up. Let me, let me kind of suss that out a bit for you here. So I teach a lot of classes, and most of the classes that I teach are in some way focused around doing therapeutic work with people. You know, sometimes it's with individuals, sometimes it's with couples or families or groups, organizations, etc. But it's focused on doing therapeutic work. And you know, whenever I teach those classes, one of the things that I end up doing is encouraging students to you know, talk about the kinds of different sorts of therapeutic work that they're doing. And in particular, I try to encourage them, and I usually don't have to encourage them very much, but I try to encourage them to talk about the therapeutic work that they're doing, which is difficult, not the work which is easy, because you know the easy stuff is quite frankly kind of boring. And what I want students to talk about is the stuff that is not easy because that's much more exciting, it's much more interesting. All right, so I'll, I'll have that happen. This, this also, by the way, is the way that I do supervision when I do clinical supervision for people. You know, somebody comes to me for supervision, I don't want them to come in and tell me, so I'm working on this case and everything's going wonderfully, yay, and I'm working on this other case and everything is going like just beautifully and there's no problems, yay, right? I, I don't want that. That is not that important. When things are, are working well, wonderful, you know, enjoy that, have them continue to work well for you. What's important, I think, in teaching future clinicians and supervising kind of uh, different clinicians at different stages of their careers is to focus on the areas where they're attempting to do, you know, good clinical work, but they're having trouble. And, and so that's what I try to do here. So in the seminar that I'm teaching, we were talking about this text and we were talking about how this text, you know, what we read in the text applies to the different sorts of clinical work that we all engage in. And part of what was going on, one of the themes in the text is that, you know, it's pretty regular that you'll run into individuals who are doing things that could be described very broadly as bad ideas or maybe even self-destructive. Right? That's that's something that you encounter a lot when you're doing clinical work. You encounter people doing things that have a very negative effect on their lives, on their bodies, on their finances, on their you know relationships, on their careers, so on and so forth. That's actually usually one of the biggest reasons why people come into therapy is because they're doing these sorts of things. You know, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I have never, 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 never had anybody knock on my door as a therapist and, and or send me an email as a potential patient and say, hey, guess what, Mr. Therapist person? My life is just doing so awesome. Everything is great all the time. And I was wondering if I could pay you money to come in and just tell you how wonderful my life is. That never happens. What does happen is people come in and they want to talk about the parts of their life that are going bad, the parts of their life that are messed up, that are creating you know some form of anxiety or sadness or tension or, or some other uncomfortable thing, right? So that that's the way that it works. And that's the kind of, and you, you know, sometimes you can engage those sorts of people and you can do good work with them and, you know, they're very compliant and very early on a lot of stuff happens and, and the work goes well, but sometimes the work doesn't go well. Sometimes doing clinical work, you know, it, it seems like you can't quite 
get it to start. You can't get like if the clinical work is an airplane, there's many instances I think where you're like getting the plane to, to go down the runway and you can't get enough speed to get it to like take off. It seems like every time you're about to get it to take off, something happens that slows things down and and you never quite get there. You never quite get that lift that you need to get the therapy going. That's the kind of stuff that I think is very useful to talk about in seminars, in classes, and in supervision. All right, so now that I've said that, uh, I was teaching this seminar and we were talking, we were reading this text and in this text, there's this description of different ways that people kind of like consistently uh, engage in kind of self-destructive behaviors. And we we're talking about why it is that people would do this. Why do people engage in self-destructive behaviors? Why do people engage in behaviors that make their lives more difficult and less easy? Why do people do that? And, you know, one of the students in the seminar described some of the work that they were doing with uh, their, their patient happened to be a high school student. And they uh, described that this is a high school student who will say on one hand that, that all that they want, all the, the thing that they want the most is to just like be left alone. They want everybody to just like leave them alone so that they can do their thing uninterrupted, unharassed, so on and so forth, right? They, they just want to like do their thing and have everybody leave them alone while they do their thing. That's what the kid says to the, to the social worker, the therapist. And then the kid, you know, as they say that, engages in all sorts of different behaviors that are kind of outrageous and attention getting, you know? And so you have the, the situation where a kid is saying, I want to be left alone and then behaving in ways that make it very, very, very unlikely that people will actually you know, leave them alone. And we were talking about, we, we used this sort of as a, a springboard to start a discussion about how we see this, not just in this, this one particular instance of a high school student, but in the instance of the lives of many different sorts of patients that we might work with. And, you know, people were talking about, well, I, you know, I have a patient that does, says they want X thing, but then does Y thing, which makes X thing like a total impossibility, right? Um, and and we, we got to asking the question, you know, why is it, seriously, like why is it that so many people come into therapy saying that they want their life to be a certain way and then they do all these different things that prevent their life from being the way that they say they want it to be? What is it that makes that kind of thing happen? And we talked about, like, give you some examples of where we saw this, right? We, we talked about how somebody might come into therapy and they have like a, an alcohol or a drug problem. And they say like, legitimately, uh, they're not lying. They, they say, Hey, I, I want to find a way to like, you know, get off of probation. I want to stop drinking. I want to stop using drugs or something along those lines. And then they, they do things that, you know, make it very likely that they'll continue to drink, continue to use drugs. They do oftentimes continue to drink, continue to use drugs. Um, you know, that that's one example. People will come in, they'll be overeating, they'll be undereating. And they say that they want to stop that. But then, of course, they they don't. Maybe somebody has a gambling addiction. Maybe somebody is cheating on somebody and they, they come into therapy and they're like, I, I hate that I do this. Like, I really, really love my partner so much and I need to stop cheating on them. I, I need to, I want to, I so want to stop cheating. Please, Mr. or Mrs. Therapist person, please help me stop cheating. And then they continue to like, you know, swipe on Tinder, which, you know, leads to the next thing, so on and so forth. 
right? People, a, a very simple example, people will come into therapy and they'll say, I have a problem with procrastination. I keep procrastinating on all these important things that I need to do and it's messing up my life. And I want you, you know, therapist person with all of your fancy, wonderful knowledge to help me not procrastinate. And then they'll continue procrastinating. So we, we were talking about all these sorts of different instances where people come in to a therapeutic encounter saying that they want a certain thing to either happen or stop happening. And then the person will, you know, they'll talk about it. They'll, it, they can work with a therapist. They can create a plan. They can come up with, you know, all sorts of different ways that the person might make this thing happen or stop this thing from happening. And, and then the person, the patient leaves the therapist's office and they go out into the world and they come back a week later and they're like, oh yeah, all that stuff that I, we talked about uh, to make, to make my life better. I didn't, I didn't do it. And, and people were the, the students in the seminar I was teaching were, were talking about those sorts of scenarios. And like I said, at the top of the segment, th this is something that I think comes up a lot in the, the classes that I teach and in the supervision that I do. And one of the questions that gets asked repeatedly to me, you know, by the people who I'm supervising and the students who I'm teaching, they look at me and they ask me, why do people do this? And they mean it. It's a serious, genuine information seeking question. Why is it that people who are our patients or our clients, if you like that word better, they come to us saying, please help me make my life better. And, you know, I, I, I work with them. Uh, we, we try to come up with a way that their life can be better. We, we make a plan or something. And like, so the plan is made. All that has to happen now is the patient needs to like execute the plan and they don't. And, and that's that thing I was describing. It's like you, you feel like you're going down the runway you know, and the plane like is picking up speed. You're, you're, you're coming up, you're building understanding of what's going on in this person's life. You can see where the, the problems are. You come up with a way that you might actually address those problems and make those problems either, you know, lessen or perhaps even disappear. Uh, the patient thinks, yeah, that's a great plan. I should totally do that thing. That's, that's great. Thank you so much for helping me. They leave the office and then the plane like slows down and they don't put the plan into action. And people are like, why is this? Why does this happen? And, you know, when, when this happened in the seminar, uh, I was listening to a student describe their work with the, with a high school kid who's saying, I want people to leave me alone. And then I'm going to do all these different things that lead to people definitely not leaving me alone. A and the student was like, what's up with this kid? Why does this kid do this? And my answer was jouissance. Jouissance is why you're, this kid does this. Jouissance is why somebody comes into the office and says, I need to stop procrastinating, but then continues to procrastinate. Jouissance is why somebody who recognizes that they are like on probation and that if they fail a drug test, they're going to have to like potentially go to jail. Why would they keep using drugs? And they know we're going to be drug tested. Why would they keep doing this? The answer, jouissance. If somebody you know, recognizes that they have a, a difficult relationship with food. They either overeat uh, or they undereat. Why would they continue doing jouissance? Jouissance is the answer to these things. And I said that in the seminar that I was teaching. I said jouissance is, is a topic that can explain a lot of these behaviors. And the students were kind of like, oh, I've never heard that word before. Can you tell me more? 
So here's what I told in the class, the seminar I was teaching about jouissance. This is my sort of uh, intro to jouissance, my jouissance 101, right? And I have this kind of broken down into five separate points. There's some sub points in a few of these points, but there's five main points. Um, oh, but before I get started, uh, jouissance, I realized I didn't say this. It's a French word. You might have figured that out just because it sounds like a French word. Um, and it usually gets translated into English as enjoyment. Now, I think that that translation is a little bit kind of like iffy. I think there might be a better translation, but I'm going to stick with enjoyment for now. I'm probably going to use the term jouissance and the term enjoyment somewhat interchangeably as I talk about these things. So here, once again, is my uh, jouissance slash enjoyment 101 in five points. Are you ready for this? I hope you are. All right. Point number one, jouissance is something that we experience in our bodies. It's an affect. It's a feeling. Uh, I call it an experience because that's what I think it is. You know, when we get angry, that is a bodily experience. Our body gets angry and we experience our body getting angry. When our body gets cold, that is a bodily experience. And then we experience our body feeling cold. Um, any emotion that we experience is something that happens to and in our bodies. If we are feeling anxiety, that is an affect. Our body is the thing that feels anxious and we experience our body experiencing anxiety. Uh, this is a really important point. I'm not going to dive too deep into it now. I think I could do like an entire episode just on how jouissance is something that is felt in the body because this is actually a super important point. Um, but here's just like the, the 101 kind of highlights of this. Um, first, this is important because, you know, you, me, uh, I have a body, you have a body. Our bodies are different, I'm sure, in a lot of different ways, right? Maybe you're taller than me. Maybe you're shorter than me. Um, you know, maybe you have a higher heart rate than I do or a lower heart rate than I do. Maybe you're allergic to things that I'm not or I'm allergic to things that you're not. Our bodies clearly have differences, and those differences are important, right? But one of the things that we could say we all have in common ubiquitously across the board, across the entire human experience is that we all have bodies and that our bodies experience things. They experience, and one of the things they experience is emotions. One of the emotions that they can experience is the emotion of jouissance. Jouissance is something that we experience in our bodies. Everybody has bodies. Everybody's body experiences jouissance in some way. That's point number one. Point number two is that our bodies all have needs and desires, both of those things. And, you know, we, we can understand these things as different, I think, and it's important to understand them as different. You know, Freud did this when he wrote um, early in his career about this thing called the pleasure principle. He was writing, actually, I think, about the way that our bodies try to get what they need. Um, let me describe that a little bit better here. So, a bodily need is the need for hydration. Our body needs hydration. If, it, if, if we are you know, in the desert and there's no water, we sweat, we get dehydrated. If we don't replenish our supply of, of fluids, if we don't hydrate our body, our body will die. Our body needs hydration. Uh, our body needs air to breathe and it needs to be clean air that isn't like poisonous and that's going to make us sick. It needs that. If the body doesn't have air, or the air is 
terrible. The body gets sick and it starts to die. If somebody holds you underwater and deprives you of air, (laughs) you drown, right? Your body needs hydration. Your body needs air. Our bodies need to be kept at a certain range of temperature, not too hot, not too cold. I don't know exactly what the range is off the top of my head, but basically our bodies need to be within that range. And if it, if our body is exposed to too much heat, that's a problem. If our body is exposed to too much cold, also a problem. We need to keep our bodies within a certain temperature range. Um, we need nutrition, you know, so we, we need to take in different forms of calories and our body. This, this is one of the interesting things about needs. When, when all these things that I'm talking about, all these needs that I've just mentioned, you know, hydration and uh, keeping your body at a certain temperature, uh, that, that sort of stuff, these are all things that are taken care of by our instincts. Our instincts know how to see to our needs. So here's an example. When a human baby is first born, the human baby instinctively knows how to breathe. No one has to teach it how to do that. The human baby instinctively knows how to... Um, you know, suckle to get nutrition and hydration, you know, from either a bottle or a breast. It just knows how to do that. No one has to teach the baby how to do that. It just instinctively knows. Um, Bodies instinctively do things to heat themselves up. When they're cold, they shiver. And shivering is a, a thing that heats our bodies up. When our bodies are very hot, they instinctively know to sweat because that puts fluid on our skin and it evaporates and, and evaporation is a cooling process. No one needed to teach your body how to sweat or how to shiver. It just knew how to do that. So uh, quick recap here. We have bodies. Our bodies have needs. Our instincts see to our needs. Um, uh, Another thing that we need is sleep. Human bodies need to sleep. No one needs to teach you how to sleep. You just know how to fall asleep. It's something that our bodies know how to do. So that's that, right? We all have these needs. Um, But human bodies are really interesting because, the, I mean, human bodies and other animal bodies uh, are the same insofar as they all have needs, right? But here's the difference. Human bodies, you know, kind of, uh, I'm comparing them to like the bodies of say like, you know, squirrels or something. Human bodies have something else. They have desires. Uh, I'm making the claim here that the human body is kind of different than other bodies insofar as it, as it does have these desires. Desires are things that are not things that we need. If we desire something, to desire it, it's got to be something that is not a thing that we need. It's something that is extra, something that is beyond our needs. Um, Jouissance, enjoyment, gets tied up in our desires. Let me maybe suss this out a little bit more here uh, because I, I feel like maybe I've said this in a confusing way. So, you know, I mentioned a bunch of things that our bodies need. Uh, so what I want you to do is to imagine a life, if you can, where all of your body's needs are met, but that's it. You don't get anything extra. All you have is the, the, the stuff that you need to keep your body surviving. You have just enough calories, just enough hydration. The temperature is just so that you're, you're not going to get into trouble. You're allowed just enough sleep so that you can continue to be alive. And that's it. Now, when I try to imagine that, I don't like what I imagine. I think that sounds like a pretty awful, wretched life, right? Having only your needs met. Now, I I don't want to make it sound like meeting needs is bad. I don't think that. Big fan of meeting my needs, your needs, and the needs of a lot of people. But what I am saying is if that's all that we do, 
If that's as far as we go, we only meet needs and we don't go any further than that, that's not going to be a life that I think would be very much fun. For a life to be worth living, for a life to be enjoyable, for a life to be worthwhile, for a life to have jouissance, um, we have to have things that we don't need, but we like having them. You know, just the other day I had a, a really, I was playing with my, my two-year-old kid. I don't need to play with him, but it's a lot of fun to do it for me. And I hope it's a lot of fun for him. Uh, I had a, a really interesting conversation with somebody the other day. And it was a conversation that I didn't need to be having. It wasn't like I was paid to have this conversation. No one was making me have it. I, it was somebody who I liked talking to. They liked talking to me. We were talking. We were both having a good time. It was enjoyable, right? That was, that was an enjoyable thing. Not something either of us needed to do. And in fact, I would even go so far as to say there was a bunch of other stuff we could have and should have been doing that, you know, like needed to get done. But we decided to not do that and to do this more fun thing, which is have a conversation about whatever. Um, so that, that's the way that that works. So let me do no, one more quick. I'm going to do a lot of recaps here. Here's another recap. We, jouissance is an experience. Enjoyment is an experience that we have in our bodies. We all have bodies. Our bodies have needs. We should meet those needs, but we should also allow our bodies to experience things that go further than meeting our needs. Uh, when If you ever read Freud's book, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, you'll get a, a taste of this, right? Like the pleasure principle is the principle of just doing what we need to do to meet our needs. That brings us pleasure. And Freud was saying, what's really interesting about people is that in addition to meeting their needs, they also want to go beyond that. They want to go beyond the things that give them just pleasure. And they, they want to have things that give them enjoyment instead. So that's, that's the next thing here. Uh, this is important because, you know, I, I'm, it, it's my opinion that we all are subjected to, we're all subjects of our bodies and subject to our body's needs and subject to what it is that our bodies desire, the extra stuff that our bodies want that they don't need. And I hope that, that makes sense. So here's point number three. Point number three is that whatever brings us jouissance, whatever brings us enjoyment is something that is addictive. All right. Uh, I really enjoy uh, eating donuts. I like I like donuts. Donuts are good. I like Dairy Queen blizzards. Those are also very good. You might see a trend emerging here. I like uh, that Oreo pie thing that they have at Baker Square. That's great. Um, this These are things that bring me enjoyment. All of those sweet, tasty bakery type items are things that I really enjoy consuming. I, I would go so far as to say that I am somewhat addicted to those things. I don't need to eat them. I don't need to eat any of those tasty treats, but boy, do I like eating them. Uh, I have some coffee here in front of me right now. Coffee has caffeine in it. I'm hydrated right now. I don't need to drink this coffee. I've already drank, you know, a decent amount of it, but I'm going to drink more because I enjoy drinking coffee. I enjoy the taste of it. I enjoy the caffeination and the way that the caffeination interacts with my biochemistry. Don't need to do it, but man, I really like doing it. I am addicted to caffeine. I am addicted to coffee. There's no doubt about that. The people at Starbucks are my drug dealers. Uh, so that's, that's the next point here. So jouissance is a bodily experience. We all have bodies. Bodies have needs. Bodies have desires. Uh, and the thing, giving our body what it desires, giving our body what it enjoys, giving our body what brings it jouissance, that is something that has an addictive quality about it. And since it's addictive, that means it's going to be kind of problematic. Whatever it is that we enjoy, whatever it is that um, scratches our desire itch, 
that's going to be something which is kind of problematic. So for example, all the things that I mentioned that I enjoy, I really like eating them, but it's problematic that I eat them because, um, you know, they, they are loaded with sugar and calories and a bunch of other things. Uh, there's such an excess of those things. My body doesn't need those things. And when I, I have the extra calories, when I have the extra sugar, when I have the extra caffeine, this creates uh, a cost. There's always a cost to getting what it is that we enjoy. Whenever we get what we enjoy, we don't get it for free. We have to pay a cost. Um, if I, you know, continued to drink a lot of coffee, you know, it would mess with my sleep. If I eat a lot of junk food, it makes me gain weight. If I only have conversations that I want to have and I don't do the things that I need to do, I'm going to get fired from my job. Uh, these are, this is the way it works. So we, everybody's kind of in this weird sort of uh, situation where they have to balance, you know, the things that they need to do that, that are vital for them to do that they, they, if they don't do these things, big problems will occur and balance that against the things that they enjoy doing, the things that go beyond what it is that they need. And this is actually kind of hard to do. So let, next point here, point number four, jouissance, enjoyment is problematic, but it is also unavoidable. Uh, we all have a mode of jouissance, a mode of enjoyment in our lives. We all have things that we enjoy that uh, we kind of wish we didn't or we wish maybe at the very least that we didn't enjoy them as much as we do, but we do continue to enjoy them. We do continue to want them, to desire them. You know, like right now, I'm, I, I just, I talked about, you know, Oreo pie and Blizzard. And right now I really want to, I'm thinking to myself like, man, a Blizzard, that sounds good, right? Um, and I have to actually now contend with that. I have to be like, oh, I can't, I shouldn't go get a Blizzard. You know, like that's, hit the brakes, man. Don't do that to yourself. Yes, it will taste good, but it's not worth it, right? I have to engage in that. This is, and this is unavoidable, right? Like if we enjoy something, we want it and getting it brings us pleasure and not getting it brings us dissatisfaction. And, and this is just something which is part of the human experience. There's no way around it. Um, last point, point number five, jouissance. I'm going to, this is a metaphor. I want you to imagine jouissance as uh, water. So <laughs> let me, let me actually back that up here. First, what I want you to imagine so I want you to imagine like a really tall mountain and at the top of this really tall mountain, there's, you know, snow and ice because it's so high that that's what you have at the top of tall mountains, right? Snow and ice. And what happens is, is that snow and ice, you know, as you move down, it starts to melt and it turns into liquid water and that liquid water starts to flow down the mountain, right? And, uh, it finds a nice path that it likes to flow in that turns into a river and the water continues to flow through that river. This is what happens with jouissance. Uh, we, our, our bodies go through life, they experience something, they enjoy it, it brings them a, a huge amount, just like this huge jolt of enjoyment. And then what people tend to do is they tend to try to repeat that thing that brings them enjoyment. Th this is the way that we are. If you um, go and you saw, I don't know, like the first Avengers movie and you if you really liked it, you were, you'd wanna go to see the second one probably, right? Um, if you go to a restaurant and you really enjoy the food, you'll probably go back. Maybe you'll even order the same thing. Uh, we, we do this. This is the way that, that habits get formed. Jouissance habits get formed because we try to repeat whatever it is that brings us enjoyment. And, uh, that's what happens. The water just continues to flow in that way. Now the water, the jouissance will flow 
in the way that it has become accustomed to flowing until something gets in the way. Uh, and this does happen in all of our lives. At a certain point, we might be really enjoying something. Like I might be really be enjoying like having a Dairy Queen blizzard like every day or something. And then one day, I don't know, I, I, I stand on the scale or I look at myself in the mirror and I think, oh, huh, I don't like the way that I look. That would interrupt my the flow of my jouissance. It would, it would stop me from being able to enjoy the Dairy Queen blizzard in the way that I was enjoying it before I had the experience of thinking like, okay, this is doing this is making my body look the way I don't want it to look. Uh, and at that point, what happens when something interrupts our flow of jouissance, it has to find a new path to flow into. And it will. Jouissance will, it's like water going down the mountain. If you put a dam in the path of the water, the water doesn't stop flowing. It just finds a way over or around the dam. That's the way that it works. Jouissance is sort of the same way. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, I'm going to really focus on this fifth point about the way that Jouissance flows and the way that we might interrupt the flows of Jouissance because I think that is something which is really important to understanding how to do really good clinical work. Here we are, final segment of this podcast. This is the segment that I really hope is going to like tie all of the stuff that I've talked about together. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but I hope that it will. So in the second segment of the podcast, I mentioned that in the seminar I'm teaching, a question was asked. The question was, you know, generally, why is it that, you know, a patient, a client, somebody who I'm trying to help has come to me and they've said, I'm having a problem with X thing. Why is it that even after we talk about it a lot and we talk about what a person can do to no longer have a problem with X thing, why is it that they continue to have a problem with X thing? That's the question. Again, the example that a student in my seminar gave, there's a student in a high school. The student says, I want people to leave me alone. I just want to be free to like live my life and do what I want to do, be who I want to be. And I just want people to leave me alone. And then that, that student will do things, many things that capture the attention of other people. And oftentimes they're things that compel people to like take a corrective role in that student's life, right? To, to tell that student, Hey, stop doing that thing that you're doing. So what gives, why? Why does this happen? And I gave a bunch of other examples of where this occurs too. Somebody's procrastinating. They say they want to stop and then they keep procrastinating, something like that. And then in the next segment of the podcast, the one right before this one, I talked about jouissance, which was my answer to the question. The, The reason that people consistently do this thing where they snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. The, the reason that they do that is this thing called jouissance which is a French word that gets translated as enjoyment. Then I gave you my jouissance 101, my five points about jouissance. And that brings us to where we are right here, right now. You know a little bit about jouissance. You've heard it as the answer to the question, why do people keep doing the thing that they say they do not want to keep doing? And here's, I'm going to try to tie all of this together. Um, 
making a sixth point, I guess, about jouissance, in addition to the five that I made in the last segment. So the sixth point about jouissance, which is kind of the most important one, but I don't think you can really understand it until after you understand the other five that I went through. The sixth point is that jouissance is very often an unconscious thing. Now, when I say that, I want to make something ultra clear here. When I say unconscious, I'm talking about unconscious in the psychoanalytic sense of the word, not the general, I think, kind of um, maybe way that a lot of people in the world think about the unconscious. I think a way that most people tend to think of the unconscious is they think of it as just the stuff that you're unaware of, but that you can become aware of fairly easily. And uh, that's more like the, the pre-conscious. What I'm talking about is the unconscious. And, and what I'm going to say here and now is that what brings us enjoyment, what gives us jouissance, is often something that is unconscious. Why is it unconscious? Well, it's unconscious because very, 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 very often the things that bring us a huge amount of pleasure, or not pleasure, pardon me, a huge amount of enjoyment are things that uh, would not meet with the approval of other people in our lives or other institutions in our lives. So here's an example. Um, somebody might uh, really enjoy being a bully. They might have a ton of fun. They love being a bully. It, it's so much fun to bully other people. It, it makes me laugh. You know, it makes me feel powerful. It's great. Being a bully is just awesome. But I'm, and I think there's probably, by the way, a lot of people who feel exactly what I just described. There's probably, I think, a lot of people who really like being bullies, but they don't, they don't think that. They don't think consciously, you know what I really like? I like being a bully. Being a bully is awesome. They don't think that. Um, it doesn't enter into their mind in that, that configuration because being a bully is, of course, something that society doesn't like. We, we tend to not like bullies. There's, there's a lot of stuff that says bullies, bad and that we should try to stop people from bullying other people, that we shouldn't be bystanders and just kind of like let bullying occur. We should, we should actively fight bullying, right? That's, that's the idea here. Be that as it may, my argument would be that there's, there's still a huge, massive amount of people in the world who really like being bullies. And, and, and I mean, why wouldn't they if we really think about this, right? If you are a bully, if you're effective at being a bully, that means you're intimidating other people, you're getting what you want, and um, that if somebody tries to stop you from getting what you want, you're able to effectively intimidating, intimidate them into backing down. It, it's, it, there is something potentially enjoyable about this. Now, we might not want to say that because, again, it's socially unacceptable to do so, but the reality is that if we're being honest with ourselves, we're all probably much more of a bully than we might want to admit. I mean, all of us who are living in the United States right now, I mean, the United States is a huge bully just as a country. Now, I don't think that everybody sees it that way, but it is. The United States is, a, is a, on a geopolitical level, a huge, huge bully. But I don't think that if you talk to political candidates, they'll, they'll talk a lot about how they want to reform the United States from its bullying like way of being in the world. But yeah, I, I've made the point. I think you get it here, right? Um, jouissance, what brings us enjoyment, oftentimes unconscious. Why is it unconscious? It's unconscious because we don't want to admit the thing that brings us enjoyment. Um, I'll give you one more example here. 
I think that somebody once said to me that they thought that the greatest antidepressant in the world was being popular. This was a high school kid. A high school kid told me that. And I thought, huh, that's interesting because it was in stark contrast to what so many other high school kids told me. They would, I would have a lot of other high school kids come to see me and they'd be like, I don't care. I don't care what other people think of me. I don't care. You know, I'm not an attention whore. I don't, I'm not like that. And then as they check their Instagram, that, that was the kind of thing that I would see. Again, that's another example, I think, of, you know, the, the first kid actually kind of recognized that being popular, being uh, admired, made them feel good, made them feel not depressed. But a lot of other kids that I was seeing, they didn't have that kind of insight, at least not yet, right? They, they thought, no, no, no. I'm, I'm one of those people who doesn't care what other people think of me. What other people think of me, that's not important. I don't care. I just do me. They re- that was the story they were telling themselves. And in telling themselves that story, they were disavowing and repressing what br- brought them enjoyment, what brought them jouissance, which was being popular, right? Uh, incidentally, a lot of times the kids who said that they didn't care about being popular the most were the least popular kids. And those were the kids who wanted to be popular the most. So I think that hopefully that makes this a little bit clearer, right? Jouissance is something that is often unconscious. What it is that brings us the greatest amount of satisfaction, the greatest amount of enjoyment is not necessarily something that we will readily admit to, to ourselves or to others. It, it, another way I could say this is the things that bring us the greatest amount of satisfaction, the greatest amount of enjoyment are oftentimes things that go through repression. Again, now repression is also another psychoanalytic word here. Repression means that there's, there's a desire. I, I have something that I desire, something that I want. But my mind does this trick where it goes, ooh, if you kind of show everybody that you want that thing, they're not going to like you very much. If people don't like you very much, life is going to be hard. And then what my mind does is it can't, it can't get rid of the desire. It can't kill it. It can't destroy it. But what it can do is put it someplace really far away and, and then kind of forget that I, that it's there. And that's what repression is. So when, when a desire is repressed, it's not something that we are able to think about or talk about because we don't know it's there, but it is there. That's what repression is. Uh, this is one of Freud's original insights. You know, he thought of the unconscious as this place where all of the things that we really want, all of the desires that we really have that are not going to be socially acceptable, all of those desires are sent to the unconscious and they it's like that's the jail that they're in they hang out there and um it's interesting because you know when when those desires are there like i said they're not gone they're not destroyed they're not dead they're they're actually very alive and very active and then what happens is they play themselves out in our lives in unexpected ways they sneak into our lives in ways that we can't predict right so i'll give you an example of this Imagine that there's a college student, undergraduate, and this college student, you know, is in their senior year of school. And what they tell everybody is what they really want is to graduate and go out into the workforce and start like, you know, making a life where they, they can be an adult. That's what they say. That plays well with everybody. Everybody hears that and they go, yeah, good for you, kid. You should do that. But what secretly, unbeknownst to this undergraduate that I've made up, Uh, What they really desire is to avoid the adult world. They don't want to do that. They don't want to like leave the university and 
go out into the world and get a job and pay rent and like, ah, that's terrifying. I don't want to do that. I want to be able to like, you know, not have tons of responsibility and just sort of like read books and go out with my friends on Friday and drink alcohol. That's what I want to do. Now, the, the kid is not going to say that because if they said that, people would be like, eh, it's not a very good desire. It's kind of kind of crummy that you want that. But that might be what the kid really desires. This could manifest itself by in the senior year, the kid um, does something where they they blow a test. You know, they 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 forget that there was a test in class one day and they don't go. And this starts to bring their grade down. And it's a, it's a required class. It's one of the last classes that they need to graduate. But they're like, okay, whatever. I'll, you know, I'll just, I'll just get through it. And then what happens is um, they oversleep. They, they, they oversleep and they don't go to class. Now they've missed a class and they've blown a test. And this kind of continues. And eventually what the kid does is goes, oh, you know what? Like the grade that I'm going to get in this class, it's going to kill my GPA, which I've worked so hard for. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to withdraw from the class and I'll take it in the summer, right? Um, and so what they do in doing that is they are able to stay in the university a little bit longer. And then maybe they, they, they don't register for the class in the summer. They miss the deadline or something. And now I have to take it in the fall. And oh man, like if only, if only, you know, maybe they'll still do the graduations or they'll walk, but they haven't really graduated. They're going to still need to do this, right? And, and this is the way that you can see a repressed desire sort of sneaking into the lives of a hypothetical person that I just made up here. Uh, in that example that I just gave, what's giving the, uh, this, this fictional undergraduate student enjoyment, what's bringing that student jouissance is avoiding the responsibilities that come with being an adult. They don't know that that's what's bringing them enjoyment. They don't know that. They're unaware that that is what's bringing them enjoyment. To their way of looking at it, what would bring them enjoyment is graduating. They think that's what they want, but what they really want is to not graduate, Right. They think they want to go into the workforce to be an adult, but what they really want is to avoid that. And this is the way that Jouissant's functions. So what we'll see a lot of times, I think, in our clinical work is people will come in and they will tell us the story that, and they're not lying. They believe this when they say it. They, they say, I want to stop procrastinating. I want to have a better relationship with food. I want to stop using drugs or alcohol. I want to um, be a better partner to my romantic partner. I want to be a better parent to my kids. I want to uh, stop having problems with people who are in positions of authority. People will say these things and they absolutely, totally believe what they're saying. They think they really want what they're telling you. If you, he- if you experience that and then in addition to that, you also experience somebody doing something that would prevent them from getting the thing that they say that they want, that tends to be evidence that there is a repressed desire, a repressed mode of jouissance, a a repressed thing that they enjoy, that they are unaware of. And part of what I think we do in our clinical work is help people kind of decipher or come to a better understanding of what this thing is that they have repressed, what it is that really brings them satisfaction. This is not easy. This is a hard thing to do because it entails enlightening people about something that they want that makes them look bad, that makes them feel bad, that makes them say like, I don't want to be that kind of person, but I kind of am that kind of person. It's not an easy thing to do. It's actually super difficult. It takes time, but that's the way it works here. So remember how I brought up the example from my seminar. 
the in, in that example where the kid is saying, I want people to leave me alone, but then behaves in ways that make people not leave them alone, the clinical work there could be seen as trying to help the kid acknowledge and experience their desire to be the center of attention, to be paid attention to, to help them understand that they want that and possibly why it is that they might want that. And if you can do that, theoretically, the kid can then make different choices. But this is a very hard thing to do. And that's my wrap for this podcast. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Gorman Limit. I am Neil Gorman. And uh, I will hopefully be in yours again sometime soon. Till then, please, please, please make glorious mistakes. <laughs>